I'm Samin Nasrat. And I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And we're Home Cooking. This is episode six of our increasingly inaccurately named four-part <laughs> miniseries <laughs> where we help you figure out what to cook with what you've got at home. Coming up later, we're going to be joined by Nadia Hussain. Woo! host of the new Netflix series, Nadia's Time to Eat, and the winner of season six of Great British Bake Off. I'm so excited. Oh, me too. I can't wait. Before we get to our conversation with Nadia, though, Samin, what have you been cooking that's been making you happy? I don't know how happy it's been making me. Oh, no. (laughs) But I've definitely been on a journey with chicken and rice. Mm. And it started with a bottle of fish sauce. With chicken? With chicken and rice. Yeah. It's mm. Well, I said it's a journey, okay? Okay, okay, okay. Like when I'm trying to figure out how to familiarize myself with new ingredients and a new cuisine and find inspiration and all that kind of stuff, it's kind of this frustrating thing where you just have to try and try and try again and know that you're going to fail. Mm. So I had to figure out a starting point that was going to be interesting. So what happened was I ran out of fish sauce mm. because I've been making congee a lot throughout the stay-at-home times. Yeah. And that gave me an opportunity to buy new fish sauce, which was a chance to buy a brand that a lot of people have told me over the years to buy. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I just had never gotten around to using up my original bottle Yeah, because they're kind of big. And the brand that everyone, you know, who knows about fish sauce tells you to buy is called Red Boat. Okay. I got Red Boat. And I have to tell you, it's so much more delicious than other brands that I've ever used. It's much more full of umami, much more flavorful. Mm. And I will probably never buy another brand of fish sauce. When you went and got the fish sauce, did you know specifically that you were going to use it to make chicken and rice? No, this was just like a weird journey. (laughs) You're just like, I have the ingredient now. What do I do with it? Kind of. Yeah. 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 I love that because that's kind of like we get a lot of questions like that from our listeners, you know, where it's like, I have this ingredient now. What do I do with it? It's like you got to do your own version of that. Oh, it's totally true. I love sort of getting to know a new ingredient. And yet, like, there's so much I don't know about this ingredient or frankly, like the many cuisines that use it on a regular basis. And so it became this opportunity for me to try to incorporate it into my cooking. Yeah. And I also have to say, I really miss all of the kinds of foods that I got to eat out before in before times. Mm -hmm. I miss my favorite Thai restaurant. I miss my favorite Cambodian restaurant. I miss my favorite Vietnamese foods. You know, I miss all of that fish sauce that I got to eat. Yeah. And I can never quite get things right. And so I started pulling down cookbooks. I started talking to people and making phone calls. And also I just started experimenting and, um, Things have gone really wrong. (laughs) There have been a lot of terrible, terrible things. And there have been a few good things that have happened. So um, one of the first things that I did was I was like, I wonder what would happen if I marinated chicken with fish sauce and then roasted it. Like, I wonder if I just did that simple thing, what would happen? Mm -hmm. I actually can't remember what else I put in that first batch, but I'm sure there were a few other things. Yeah. But I think there was a lot of fish sauce. Yeah. The main liquid part was the fish. The main liquid was fish sauce. And I did it overnight. And what I very clearly remember is that when I cooked it, that it tasted like liver. (laughs) That doesn't seem right. And not in a good way, in a really, (laughs) really not good way. It was really quite upsetting, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I did consult some friends from Southeast Asia. They said that they had never heard of that happening. (laughs) So it's not a documented thing as far as I know. You pioneered a new method of getting it wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So then I tried again. Oh, I also went deep on YouTube, which is one of my favorite things to do. Mm -hmm. It's really fun. Like, I've learned that if I start doing more creative searches on YouTube, (laughs) Uh I can find, like, really specific videos of cooking in the native language in the in the country. Yeah. I found really beautiful videos of like rice being cooked in Cambodia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> over a fire outside. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's how they do it. <laughs> like I'm just doing my best to learn and try and stay true to traditions. And so one of the things I learned at one point was that Often in Cambodia, there's a lot of sugarcane grown Mm -hmm. there. And so sugarcane is often used to baste or marinate chicken. Hmm. But if sugarcane or sugar is hard to come by these days, people might use cola or Coke 
to marinate their chicken. Oh, Coke that's made with cane sugar. Yeah. Huh. Like not the kind that we have in the U.S. Not the kind we have here, but like, say, Mexican Coke. The good kind. Yeah. So then I was like, oh, cool. So maybe I'll try that. So then I went and I got Mexican Coke mm. and I made a marinade with like lemongrass and macroot lime leaves and ginger and garlic and fish sauce, a lot less fish sauce. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I got a chicken and I cut out the backbone. I spatchcocked it. And I cooked that a few different times and tweaked it a bunch of times. And then I was like, I wonder what would happen if I cooked this over rice so that as it cooks, you know, the like chicken fat drips into the rice and you get this like delicious crispy rice with the chicken flavors. And so that was pretty delicious. Wow. And then I made like a little yummy fish sauce dressing and a little herby salad with like crunchy peanuts to put on top. So I'm pretty happy with that and I feel really excited. So it's been a fun and weird and wonderful fish sauce journey I've been on. Journey in a red boat. (laughs) It's, It's been good. What have you been eating that's making you happy lately? Well, I've really missed going out to get ice cream and, uh, you know, eating it in a cone, in an actual cone. Mm -hmm. But last week I realized I could get curbside delivery of a pint of ice cream and cones Mm -hmm. from an ice cream place that I love here in L.A. called Wanderlust that has Filipino roots. And uh, they have a sticky rice and mango ice cream. Yum. And I think it's maybe the best ice cream I've ever had. So I got that and I got three cones and I was really, really happy. So is it one flavor? Is it sticky rice and mango is the same flavor? Yeah, exactly. It's one flavor based on the Thai dessert, sticky rice and mango. That sounds so good. That sounds, you really are like Mr. Mango. (laughs) If I were a Mr. Men book, I would be Mr. Mango. Oh, wait, I have a question. Do you know about the secret WhatsApp mango economy? (laughs) No. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, apparently there's like all these people who import mangoes and then sell them like on this like WhatsApp (laughs) via WhatsApp. It's like the orange market. Yeah. (laughs) So if you have your like specific mango that you like, you just get in touch with your mango buyer, your mango purveyor, your mango dealer. Your mango guy. (laughs) Which I love. I love that people like have their way to get their hands on their favorite fruit, you know, and that the apps are like this way to do it. It's just pretty awesome. So that is great. Uh, Do you have a mango guy? I don't have a mango guy. How about an ice cream guy? Or do you make ice cream? Have you ever made ice cream? Do you make ice cream yourself? Rishi, you need to know something about me. Okay. I love ice cream more than anything else. (laughs) Okay, good. It's always been my very favorite food. Hmm. I've always been obsessed with making it. I didn't know that. Yeah. As a cook, I've been obsessed with like trying to figure out how to make it really well. And it's really hard sort of on an artisanal level Mm -hmm. in large part because... Every time you open a freezer, which is a lot of times in a regular restaurant, Mm -hmm. ice crystals form, you know, and then your ice cream gets icy. And if Mm. you don't use certain kinds of preservatives or certain kinds of fancy, like sort of uh, manipulated sugars, you just don't get like those really excellent textures. Right. And it's the worst when you go to an ice cream shop and uh, you get like the ice crystals in your ice cream. Mm -hmm. Or even in homemade ice cream, you know, like so good that first day. And then usually like it gets either frozen super hard or it starts to get icy and it's tricky. But before I knew any of that, before I'd ever made ice cream, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with ice cream and poetry. We would have, see, we would have been best friends in high school. Really? Ice cream and poetry? I mean, come on. I'm just, (laughs) we've been hanging out all day. (laughs) And so um, I had a dream, a secret dream that I wrote about in my journals. And it wasn't a secret. I told everybody about it. (laughs) What am I kidding about? I have a big mouth. (laughs) And it was to open an ice cream shop and call it The Emperor of Ice Cream, named after a Wallace Stevens poem. (laughs) And that every ice cream was going to be named after a poetic illusion. Wait, this is amazing. I unfortunately can't remember. (laughs) But like, you would actually be my perfect partner. You could name all the ice creams. I would love... (laughs) Wait, can we do this? Can we open this ice cream shop? Absolutely not. (laughs) No, I know too much now about about like food business economy. I'm already thinking of ice cream flavors, though. What do you got? What you got? What you got? Uh, The Rocky Road Not Taken. Oh, no. By Robert Frost, even. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. You could have a a malt flavor, malt Whitman. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) This is all I'm going to be thinking about now. Jeez, and you're sure we can't start an ice cream shop? Definitely. Oh, 
That's too bad. I did get to go do one of my favorite, favorite things of the year yesterday, and I might turn the results into ice cream, which is pretty much one of my very favorite flavors, which is I got to go sit in a Persian mulberry tree and pick mulberries, Mm. which is one of my favorite fruits. They're like nature's sour Haribo fruits. Wait, is mulberry ice cream something that exists in the world? Have you ever had that before? Um, Yes. It's like one of my top two favorite flavors Mm. ever in the entire history of the universe. (laughs) It's like the special flavor of Chez Panisse restaurant where (laughs) I learned to cook. Yeah. And mulberries are, you know, there are many different varieties, but probably the most special, if you ask me, is the Persian mulberry. And Mm -hmm. I'm not biased. It's not like, you know, it's not because I'm Persian. It's because they're the best. (laughs) That's how I feel about about mangoes, too. I mean, like, don't make that about my Indianness. I just love mangoes. Can I just love mangoes? Yeah, totally. But the taste of it is so magical. It's like sweet and sour and floral and fruity. And they're so precious. They're so juicy. And they just like are bursting with juice, Mm -hmm. you know. And so to be able to like get even a little tray of them to bring home to make ice cream is a miracle. And also they're so delicious. It's like, how do you even have the self-restraint to not eat them? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I brought home probably, I don't know, like two cups of them. And I may be able to make a little bit of ice cream today. Amazing. That might be my project. Okay, so speaking of a mango guy and uh, an ice cream guy, you having a guy, <laughs> I, I'm going to take a moment for a second to... You're going to take a moment for a second? <laughs> I'm going to take a moment for a second to... To embarrass me to high heavens. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is going to be really good, I think. This is something I've been wanting to do for you for a very long time. I've been talking about it with you for months. I think for more than months. I think for at least a year. Right. But now we have a podcast where I can talk to people about you. (laughs) You have literally a captive audience and also I'm captive. (laughs) Exactly. So as you may have noticed in our podcast, when Samine has talked about her life cooking and eating, she has mentioned that she is living by herself. She's without a romantic partner right now. And to me, that just seems wrong. There's this precious treasure out there in the world that is not being appreciated and cherished as fully as it ought to be. And, you know, it's not easy for a public figure like Samin to like be on dating apps. So I have wanted for a long time to be able to set Samin up with someone with the idea that there are probably lots and lots of men out there who would be a great match for Samin, but protect her from having to go through the painful process of weeding out the inappropriate matches, let's say. So, in recognition of all that, I'm asking you, our listeners, to send in not only your questions about home cooking, but also applications to be Samin's special gentleman friend. (laughs) That sounds so gross. So gross. <laughs> Can you just say boyfriend? Okay. Sure. To be Samin's boyfriend. <laughs> I am just cowering with mortification and embarrassment. I have completely slid you under are, my desk. Your face is totally red right now. <laughs> okay. Here's how it's going to work. Send me an email with your application or, you know, if you yourself are not in a position to be Samin's boyfriend, recruit your... Eligible bachelors. <laughs> yes, your your handsome friends and brothers who might actually deserve someone as great as Samin. And then you or they will send an email to a littlehomecooking at gmail.com. You send it, you'll send it to me, because I read all the emails. I don't know if you know this. I read all the emails and questions before they ever go to Samin. So she will not see your letter. I will. Me... And a select group of confidants the, that I'm calling the Auntie and Uncle Committee. <laughs> so send me an email. Let me know about yourself. This is not, by the way, going to be shared on the podcast the way our questions will. But let me know as much as you feel comfortable about yourself. You probably know a lot about Samin already. So send as much information as you can. And so I can separate them from the regular home cooking questions. Use the subject line, honey for Samin. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Wait, I have a question. What are some of the criteria by which the auntie and uncle committee (laughs) is judging? Is judging? Okay, well, he has to be kind for sure. Very important. You must be kind 
to my friend. Also, Samin is very smart and talented, a very gifted writer. So I'm looking for someone smart enough who can hang at your level, who can at least appreciate your smarts. So kind and smart. These are the top two characteristics that I'm looking for. How does that sound? Sounds, I mean, whatever. I have very low expectations here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really looking forward to this. What are our geographical constraints? Like, are we, is this like a global, are we like solar system? What's the deal? Yeah. Yeah, Anywhere, (laughs) anywhere in the Milky Way (laughs) is fine because right now nobody's meeting in person anyway. It's true. No restrictions geographically. And thank you for being a good sport and letting me finally try and set you up. I'm terrified. I just want everybody to know I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm mortified. I'm all the fights. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's make this happen, okay? Send me an email, a littlehomecooking at gmail.com, and subject line, honey for Samin. Okay, moving away from honey, we got a question about salt. Oh, thank God. <laughs> an area of your expertise from Daniel. Here, let me play oh, for you. Hit me, Daniel. <laughs> Hi, Samin. In addition to my kosher salt and my Malden sea salt, I have some fleur de sel and some pink Hawaiian salt with red clay in it and some sea salt that I bought on an island in Japan. And I'm trying to figure out how to really appreciate the differences between these salts or whether it's all just going to taste the same. I like this question because it made me think of the wonderful moment in your show where you go and you try all the different salts on camera. Totally. And I bought some salt on an island in Japan. Hey. It's so funny, too, because I actually just this morning was going through like a drawer in my pantry and I found a bag of that salt from that island in Japan. Oh, cool. And while we were making the show, I was like, I know the thing that's going to happen is that I'm going to just receive salt from all over the world in the mail. And did that happen? That has happened. <laughs> oh, that's what I like about you, Samin, though. You're so salt of the earth. Oh, no. <laughs> I just knew that I was setting you up. It's like there's only a certain number of seconds that can go by without it happening. <laughs> Before you get assaulted with another one. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Sorry, you're not sorry. Well, so the thing about that section from your show and your book is, you know, it's really interesting. I can definitely appreciate that all these different salts have different qualities and different appearances when you look at them microscopically. But still, for me personally, I just I don't know when to turn to some of them, when to use them. Yeah, I mean. Me too. Like for the most part, I pretty much just use. uh, Well, here's an exclusive scoop. Oh, God, you're going to come up with some salt pun for this. But, like, <laughs> no, I can't I can't even talk anymore without, like, the fear that's been struck into me. <laughs> okay. What were you saying? Oh, no, this is what I was going to say was, okay, so these are, like, all the secrets spilling out. Mm. So, in the book and in my cooking career, I have always, I would say, relied on diamond crystal kosher salt as my mm-hmm. go-to salt. Because I think of it as the friendliest salt. Mm -hmm. It's the least salty. It's rolled after it's made. And so the flakes are flat. So they have greater surface area and they stick to food. Mm -hmm. What that means practically is that you can use more of it without accidentally oversalting your food. Right. But the like kind of issue with writing recipes that just say kosher salt is that there's this other brand of kosher salt. Right, Morton's. And that one comes in the blue box, and it's made in a totally different way, and it has a completely different salinity. It's almost twice as salty by weight, Hmm. or maybe more than twice as salty by weight, but it's significantly saltier. Hmm. And so if a recipe says kosher salt, like add one teaspoon kosher salt, but it's written for the red box, and you have the blue box, then you make a recipe and your thing comes out salty. You're like, I don't understand why, you know? Mm -hmm. And so in every recipe in my book, and also when I wrote for the New York Times, like I have been specifying the brand. Right. And then the New York Times decided that it felt sort of partisan to say which brand. (laughs) Right. So they were like, we don't want to do that anymore. We just want to say kosher salt. And I'm like, but that's bad cooking practice. So I refuse to just say kosher salt without specifying a brand. So I changed in my recipes at the times to find sea salt 
because that generally fine sea salt, no matter where you buy it, is the same salinity. Uh, and also, if you don't have fine sea salt, it's just about the same salinity as like table salt, if table that's salt. what you have. Yeah. So I just was like, this is better practically for more cooks at home. So because that's what I now write recipes with, that's actually what I have at home. And I don't even have diamond crystal kosher salt. And it's become this huge thing where now, like, as I'm working on my next book, <laughs> isn't I don't know what to do right now. Like, I'm at, I'm ha- I'm in a major like salt philosophical quandary. But anyway, this is a, none of this answers Daniel's question. <laughs> <laughs> that we are in this tangent. Can you explain if fine sea salt is basically the same salinity as? table salt, why do you even prefer one to the other? Why not just use table salt? Because for the most part, table salt is iodized. You know, like the, I would say like most people in America, in their homes have that cylindrical cardboard tube of the Morton's salt with Mm -hmm. the little girl with the umbrella, you know, Mm -hmm. the iodized table salt. Yeah. And that has iodine in it. And for me as a cook, I prefer to cook with salt that is not iodized because I can taste that iodine in my food. Right. And I don't like that. And this actually does relate to Daniel's question because I think fundamentally the decision of which salt to use comes down to cost, to texture, and to taste. And so fleur de sel, which you mentioned you have, is among the most expensive salts in the world. A tiny little jar of fleur de sel could be like, I don't know, $18 or $22. Hmm. And so that's not something you want to like dump into your pasta water because then you just spent $22 to dissolve all of that away. Right. What you want when you get that fleur de sel is to feel that crunch and to taste those minerals. Those are delicious minerals that you're paying for. (laughs) On the other hand, iodine, which is also a mineral, to me, it tastes metallic. Mm -hmm. And so... I choose in my own eating to not use iodized salt. I don't like that taste. I choose to have sort of like a blank slate of salt for most of my cooking. Sometimes I want all of that delicious mineraliness, especially on things like um, salads. Summertime salads, like on top of your like just simple things like sliced tomatoes or, you know, tomato and mozzarella salad. That's where I would use some of these special salts. And then things like the pink salts or there's like the black volcanic salt. Those to me in large part are visual. You know, they're much less about how they taste and much more about how they look, Mm. especially the black ones and the pink clay ones. I actually have used black salt on top of mozzarella, on top of like any sort of salad where there's gonna be light colored ingredients that offer contrast, especially if those salts are produced in such a way to be flaky. But honestly, like you have to be familiar enough with the, all these like precious and like fancy things. Different minerals taste differently. Right. So that when you make the decision to add them, you also understand what it is that you're adding. You actually started to answer the next question that I had. This one comes from Hannah. My name is Hannah and I'm in rural Ireland at the moment. Um, I've been so excited about all the delicious summer fruit in season right now and I'm currently obsessed with this sweet tahini fruit salad that I've been making nearly every day this month. Um, I know I need to mix it up though, so I was wondering if you have any ideas or tips for using fruit in savoury salads. I love you guys. Thank you. Well, that was just like delicious. I just want to listen to Hannah talk for the next hour. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hannah, where's your podcast? Yeah. Can you just call us and talk to us, please? (laughs) I, first of all, want to, and hold, please. I need to Google what a sweet tahini salad is because Mm. that sounds so good. Fruit salad with, ooh, ooh, delicious. Ooh, that sounds really good. You're getting so much from Hannah. Thank you. Mm, Delicious. Okay. So it sounds like that salad isn't exactly savory, but you're asking how do we turn fruit into savory dishes? Yeah. Do you have any savory fruit salad recipes? Yeah. One of my favorite things to do in the summertime is to work fruit into my meals. Mm -hmm. But I think the beauty of fruit is like there are so many sort of moments in the arc of a fruit's ripeness. 
And when it's perfectly ripe or even a little bit before it's perfectly ripe is when I would maybe use it raw. And if you eat meat, that might be nice to you, you know, have a little slice of prosciutto. The classic mm. one is melon or figs with prosciutto, but I also like all sorts of stone fruit with a little slice of meat or salty cheeses are really nice. Hmm. You know, another thing that I love so much, oh, all these things are coming back to me now, like summer's past. This is such hmm. a wonderful exercise, actually. <laughs> so this isn't a salad, but this is like one of my very favorite things that I used to make a restaurant where I used to work is I would take a big piece of country bread and grill it with olive oil. You could just toast it and brush it with olive oil. If you want, you could take a clove of garlic and just rub it lightly on one side. And then I like doing this with a cheese called fromage blanc, which is a French kind of farmer's cheese. If you can't get your hand on fromage blanc, you could use ricotta cheese, or you could use cream cheese, or any sort of like soft white cheese. You could spread all over there, and then you start slicing all of your beautiful, very ripe fruit on there. Mm. And so there's just something like this wonderful contrast between like sweet tart fruit and this like salty, soft cheese and a little bit of garlic and this crispy, crunchy, crunchy bread. That's just a really nice thing. And if you want to kind of make it into like a salad-y thing, you could put a big pile of arugula that's like dressed with a balsamic vinaigrette on top. Hmm. I mean, that's a perfectly good lunch or dinner right there. Yeah, I just feel like when I work fruit into a meal, I just think like, okay, I have this wonderful gift of this already sweet and ideally tart thing. So how do I complement that with other textures and flavors? With sweet and tart, what's nice is going to be fat and salt and crunch and possibly leafiness, right, or creaminess. So you would want to add sort of like one thing from every column. Yeah, I have my own Proustian memory of a salad that had fruit in it. It was heirloom tomatoes and peaches and corn and basil. And I feel like I'm always trying to recreate that. Mm, I think tomatoes and peaches are a great classic combo. Mm -hmm. That's just, you, you could just mix those things, toss them with some balsamic vinegar and olive oil and flaky salt and call it a day. Yeah. And even like a little bit of feta cheese, maybe. What I love about it is that it was like sort of neither sweet nor savory. It was somewhere in between. Yeah, that's super awesome. And another classic salad, at least around in these parts, is watermelon and feta cheese, mm -hmm. which I like to do with a bunch of herbs. Oh, another sort of category of ways to use fruit and f incorporate fruit in onto a plate mm -hmm. is to make a fruit salsa, which is just, you know, like a really simple herby salsa that you then sort of chop some fruit into. So a classic herb salsa would just be like parsley, maybe some shallots, some vinegar, olive oil, salt. And then if you wanted to, you could add some cherries into that or some peaches. Mm. And then you would get this like sweet sour thing. And then that would be this wonderful accompaniment to say grilled fish or even grilled chicken or grilled pork or any grilled meat really, mm. or grilled vegetables. It would be really nice with grilled corn. So that's kind of a way to go. And then we can take the next step and start grilling the fruit itself. Yeah. <laughs> my trick for grilling fruit is, well, it's not really a trick. I guess I would just say my advice for grilling fruit is it does have to be ripe. It doesn't really work. You can't make a banana bread with unripe bananas and yeah. hope that they ripen in the oven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can't make, you can't grill fruit with unripe fruit and hope that it like turns out good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you have to start with good fruit that's ready to eat and you need a pretty hot grill and the sugar is going to complicate things and it is going to want to stick to the grill. So you might want to oil it or butter it a little bit mm -hmm. and then you put it down and you don't move it because it's going to stick at first. So you have to let it form a crust and then you can move it and get an even browning on it. And you want to do it on both sides, on the skin side and the cut side. Oh. The other thing I really like to do is to roast fruit. And we have a nice big fig tree in our yard. And I think fig leaves and figs, mm. I, I didn't realize this because I thought of them always as like really prospering in just the Mediterranean climate. Yeah. But figs actually grow in a really broad variety of climates. Even in rural Ireland, potentially? Potentially, like they grow in 30 something states in this country. So mm. 
if there's a fig tree in your region (laughs) and you feel like you can just go steal a few leaves, fig leaves are so aromatic and amazing. You don't even need the figs themselves. Just the leaves are this incredible tool. So you could just line a dish with fig leaves and then put cut fruit on it and drizzle it with a little bit of sugar or just like a dollop of butter or olive oil and let's say a little bit of white wine and roast it and get all those sauces reduced and they become something else. They transform and the flavors concentrate and that sauce gets really delicious and that's something really nice to serve with some salad or a big toast slathered with cheese or it would be really great with an omelet. Am I like having some major fruit blind spots right now? What else am I missing? Well, fig leaves are also great if you need to cover up your naughty bits. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It's a classic. It is a classic. Thanks for the question, Hannah. Please call us back and ask more questions because I love listening to your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Did we talk a lot about lemons last time? Well, we just talked about your lemon tree. Right. Dame Maggie Smith. And uh, I talked about how I've been using lemons in everything. But I, I also wanted to respect those people for whom lemons might not be an option. Case in point. <laughs> That's a really funny way to put it. <laughs> what did I do? I just want to respect those people for whom <laughs> lemons might not be an option. Like that's yes. very careful wording. <laughs> <laughs> well, case in point, our listener, Julia. Okay. This has been my frustration forever. And it's quite the sob story. I have an intolerance to lemon. Oh. So my question for you is, how do I navigate a world where lemon seems to be essential in nearly every recipe? Especially, I noticed this with pastas, salad dressings, but also many chicken and seafood recipes as well. Are there any substitutes for lemon I can use in my food to channel a similar level of acidity? What would you recommend? Thanks so much. Hot diggity dog. What a bummer. I didn't really think about it until we got this question, but we are in our podcast and certainly in my own cooking, very lemocentric. <laughs> what is this word? <laughs> lemocentric? Lemocentric. I feel really bad that she's intolerant. And I wonder too if that means also limes and other citrus. I'm going to assume that it does. Yeah. Which is such a bummer. Like such a bummer. What do you think? Have you ever been in a spot where you needed to use lemon, but just couldn't get access to one? And Yeah, I've definitely been like, you know, I have pretty much always lived in California or Italy where lemons are like literally falling off trees into my lap. Literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anytime I have left, I have been very aware of the fact that lemons are actually quite precious, you know, mm-hmm. and that they're something that we have to parse out and save. And I understand that. I definitely understand that. So the natural answer is going to be fermented things, is going to be pickles and mm. and vinegars. Mm. Like when it's come to pickling, I've always just done the pickling method where you like dump a whole bunch of vinegar over something. Yeah. And only in the last like two years have I undertaken lacto-fermentation, which is the other kind of fermenting, really the original kind, which is where you just let salt and time and temperature have their way with ingredients, usually with um, Hmm. vegetables and fruits. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more nuance that goes into it. I can give you some resources and we'll put them on the resource page of the website. But I would say the ultimate person who I look to for encyclopedic knowledge on pickling is Sandor Alex Katz. His first book was called Wild Fermentation. His bigger book that I have sitting right here next to me is called The Art of Fermentation, and he's really fantastic. So these are kind of the things that I look to, to kind of keep in my kitchen and constantly add into food to add acid. Even just this morning when I made my scrambled eggs, I was like, okay, what cabbage am I going to put on top? And I pulled out my own weird cabbage and it was too pickly. So then I pulled out some kimchi and I put that on top. (laughs) And so if you can't do lemon, I get it. Lemon juice, the squeeze of lemon, the lemon zest, that's a thing that really is sort of a crutch that we all use. We have to broaden our... our, um, Lemocentric minds. We have to broaden our lemocentric minds. And so what I would recommend to you also is to really expand your collection of vinegars. 
because there are so many different and really delicious artisan vinegars from across the country and beyond that can offer a variety of flavors that are so much more sort of nuanced and delicate than probably you might think just what like regular red wine vinegar from the grocery store tastes like. Hmm. And so actually one of my friends, Christina Crawford, she has started producing vinegar. Her company's called Tart, And she makes all sorts of different vinegars in Brooklyn from all sorts of different ingredients. She has a really delicious celery vinegar I've been using. And it's really delicate. That's the kind of thing that you can add into all sorts of ingredients. Hmm. There's another vinegar that I really love, really, really delicious agrodolce vinegar, which means sweet and sour, from a producer called Katz here in California, K-A-T-Z. And we'll link to all of these in our resources. But I do think really expanding the vinegars that you use is another way to sort of get those, maybe not same flavors as lemon, but just like to be able to get a range of acidity in your food that will help brighten and liven things up. My go-to vinegar (laughs) is not artisanal, it's not fancy. It's the one I use literally every day is seasoned rice wine vinegar from Marukan. Like I just think that that's so delicious. It has a little sugar in it, a little bit of salt in it. I dip cucumbers in it, I dip carrots in it, I sprinkle it on every salad basically when I'm just like making something to eat quickly for lunch. Find your go-to vinegar, and that, I think, will solve a lot of problems, too. Thanks so much for the question, Julia. Okay, so, I mean, I have two questions here for you. Both of them are about having too much of one ingredient. Okay. And so I, I thought I could give them two together. I'm secretly hoping you might be able to answer both of them together. Okay. Hi, Samin and Rishi. I recently joined a grain share because I bake a lot of bread. And one of the first things they sent in the first box was a lot of cornmeal. I mean, four pounds of it. And so I'm wondering if you guys have any suggestions of things to do with it, because there's only so much cornbread we can eat. My boyfriend really hates polenta. Thanks for your help. Okay, and here's the next one. Okay. My name is Britt, and I'm calling from Sydney, Australia. Like many people, I kind of lost the plot at the beginning of COVID. And I'll admit that I bought one or two more grocery items than I perhaps absolutely needed. And so one of the items that I purchased was a 1.5 kilogram wheel of pecorino. (laughs) And whilst I love cacio e pepe as much as the next person, I would really love your ideas about what else I might do with this giant wheel of pecorino. Okay. You've got one person with a lot of cornmeal and one person with a lot of cheese. Yeah. Okay. So I think obviously this is not going to use up all of either of them, but Mm. one thing that you could do to use up both ingredients is to make some crackers, some very cheesy crackers, like Mm. a delicious amount of cheese crackers. (laughs) I never thought of crackers as something that could be homemade. Oh my God. Homemade cheese crackers, like homemade sort of (laughs) Cheez-Its are so tasty they take a lot of cheese, honestly. Mm. So they don't take a lot of cornmeal. So sorry. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you can make like a corny, cheesy cracker. So I, we, I'll, I'll kind of look up some recipes. My friend Lori Ellen, who tests pretty much all of my recipes, she's a wonderful baker. She used to work at Tartine and she is just like a great person in my life. She has started contributing to the New York Times cooking and she recently contributed a cheese cracker recipe. So um, we'll link to that. And I think there are probably really simple ways to incorporate cornmeal into that recipe. Mm. And I think any cheese cracker recipe can be adapted. You can use pecorino for, you might just need to reduce the salt since pecorino is a relatively salty cheese. Mm -hmm. Another way to use up even more pecorino and much simpler, honestly, than, than even cheese crackers is to make something called frico which is um, usually made with Parmesan, but Mm. it's just, it's that thing where you grate cheese like on a microplane grater or really fine grater. Mm -hmm. And then you bake it usually on like a silicone baking sheet. Mm. And then the cheese kind of melts into like a sheet, a sheet of cheese. Mm. And then you take it out of the oven and you let it cool and it hardens. And then you can kind of break it up into shards. And that stuff is just like its own delicious, like gluten-free cheese cracker, cheese crispy yummies. Mm -hmm. Another thing I like to do with Frico, I actually put a recipe for this in the New York Times cooking when in like the kids section a couple years ago, I made a version of Frico with um, seeds in it. It was like a seed and cheese Frico. 
And I think I had sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds and sesame seeds and a bunch of different cheeses and like a little bit of cayenne pepper. And you just kind of mix all that stuff and you bake it for, I don't know, like eight minutes or something. And then you pull it out. And when it's cool, you break it up into pieces. And that is a really nice topping for soups or salads. Or if you're me, you just eat it by the handful. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the best, most delicious snack. Sounds great. So if I had a lot of cheese, like I would probably make that. But just so you know, like Pecorino is a really dry cheese that is going to last a really long time. And I know this because while it's not Pecorino, when we were filming my series, many people on my crew bought like absurd amounts of Parmesan when we were in Emilia-Romagna filming about Parmesan. Like, right. And by absurd, I, I mean like multiple kilos into the double digits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that was in late 2017. Mm-hmm. And in March of this year, I got a text from the person who had bought the very largest amount of cheese. And he was like, today is a momentous occasion. He's like, do you know why? And I was like, oh my God, you finally used up all the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and so just so you know, like those cheeses stay good for a really long time. Like okay, they might get good. a little bit moldy on the outside and that's fine. But you don't need to be in a huge rush to use up that pecorino. Okay. So, so Britt, you're fine. Take your time using the cheese. Yeah, you're in safe territory, Britt. Yeah. For the cornmeal, I don't know any ways to use up massive amounts, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I do think there are a lot of things that use a good amount. And you can just start replacing flour in dishes with cornmeal and you can't replace a lot of flour or all the flour, but you could probably replace like 25% of your flour with cornmeal in things like cookies, Hmm. in crisp toppings, crumble toppings in the summer, you know, cornmeal is such a nice topping and sort of like complement to summer fruits. The other thing I was thinking of, which um, he said he specifically didn't want this, yeah. and she said she specifically didn't want this, so this is actually going against everybody's wishes. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. But one thing that I think could be delicious if both people sort of wanted to open up their minds would be a cacio e pepe cornbread. <laughs> oh. oh, that sounds so good. Wait, like so like yeah. a cheesy, black, peppery, yeah. savory cornbread? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That sounds... I want that. (laughs) Just a thought. Oh, that's a great idea. (laughs) And I hope that they both make that. I hope so, too. Now, I'm so excited because we're going to talk to Nadia Hussein. In 2015, she won season six of The Great British Bake Off, maybe my favorite season of one of my favorite shows. And since then, she's become a columnist for The Times of London and the host of multiple TV shows. Most recently, she came out with the Netflix series, Nadia's Time to Eat, where she tells the audience about her favorite time-saving recipes. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to get to chat with you. That's all right. Thank you very much. (laughs) Nadia, Samin and I have been uh, wondering if there was one thing during quarantine that's been kind of your go-to dish that just like makes you happy or makes everybody in your family happy. The one thing I think, the saddest thing is the thing that makes my kids really happy requires eggs. And there's a there's a shortage of eggs. As soon as lockdown hit, there were no eggs to be found. But one thing that my kids absolutely love is a chicken korma. And not the kind of chicken korma that you get at a kind of anglicized Indian restaurant that's full of cashews and not really not really a korma uh, the <laughs> kind that my mum cooks and it's, it's a labour of love it's got very few ingredients but it takes a long time to cook down gently and then you have to leave it aside in the fridge for a few days so it really the flavours really kind of enhance and so it's one of those things that you know I they know I'm cooking it but they can't have it for at least two days and so that's something that we've um, enjoyed making during lockdown, especially when we can get a hold of eggs. But I mean, we're lucky we've got four chickens. So um, whenever I save up a couple of eggs from the chickens, I make them a lovely chicken korma. That sounds amazing. Will you talk us through how to make it? Yeah, so it's very simple. And it's one of my favorite. The reason why I love it so much is because it's one of those dishes that my dad ran Indian restaurants his whole life. And um, he would serve up korma. And and it never made sense to me because the korma he served never looked like the korma we ate at home. And I said, Dad, that doesn't even look like the same thing. And he says, no, no, English people are not ready for this. (laughs) 
he would say English people don't know what to do with it. I mean the coma your mum makes that's just too much we have to make an English version and that always just got on my nerves a little bit because it was like dad you know the world is ready for mum's coma please can we have mum's coma and it is so simple it's literally just ghee or butter so clarified butter whole spices always whole spices never any ground spices so cinnamon cardamom and bay leaves and then garlic ginger and onion that's it like there's literally nothing else in it so it's like six very simple ingredients so you cook the whole spices in the ghee and then you add the onions and the ginger and the garlic but you cook it so gently on the lowest heat because you're not allowed to get any color because korma is naturally quite a pale curry so you don't cook the onions like naturally when I cook a curry I cook the onions till they're really dark and caramelized it's completely counterintuitive you cook them so gently that they reduce but they don't color and that in itself is a good four hours of just onion cooking <laughs> that's why I say it's a labor of love in in our korma we always have whole chicken and you chop the chicken up so you've got lots of different pieces never off the bone always on the bone because that adds loads of flavor then you whack all of that in and then you add the eggs with the chicken and then you let that boil down for at least another depending on what kind of chicken you're using if it's a kind of chicken that needs stewing which is what we normally use it takes about three hours and you've already added boiled eggs in with the chicken at this point and the eggs sit in the sauce for about three hours and you get this egg that has literally absorbed all the flavor of that sauce and permeated all the way into the yolk and that's like wow. eight, you know eight hours later you then cool it and then you stick it in the fridge and then you don't look at it you don't think about it you think about it you think about it a lot <laughs> you only think about it what are you talking about <laughs> it's just anticipation for the next three days exactly that's all you think about and then it sits in the fridge for a few hours uh, like for a couple of days and the longer the better so i leave it in there for about three days and then you take it out and then you reheat it and then you cook a little bit of rice maybe a like a mustard onion chutney salad type thing to go with it just for some freshness and that's it and it what really irritates me about such a delicious curry like that is that it takes three days from start to finish and it's gone in about 45 minutes <laughs> <laughs> and what was the version that your dad had in his restaurant like so it was exactly those ingredients but then he would add tomatoes and he would add lots of ground spice and then he would add cream and he would add cashews and it just i'm all about that like, i love cooking curries but the way i was raised to cook a lot of it is very simple and i think a lot of people are afraid of southeast asian cooking because they think it's like 16 ingredients that you have to board a flight you know to the other side of the world <laughs> to get the spices and it isn't it isn't necessarily <laughs> That way it can be really simple. And I grew up eating really traditional Bangladeshi food and it's not as complicated as some might think. But dad's version was just, it was a hideous version. That's what, it was horrible. <laughs> Will you explain why whole spices are important for this and not ground spices? We use a lot of whole spices in our cooking and often they're just, they're not even crushed or ground. They're just added, just to add scent and add that kind of, it doesn't just coat your mouth. You don't get these kind of like overwhelming spices or flavors. It's just this artistry. And I don't know how and who came up with it. But to me, there's this beauty about cooking with whole spices. You don't just get the flavor, you get the scent. So you're using all of your senses. And, and you know, I grew up using whole spices and a lot of the cooking that I do uses whole spices. So you, you know, while you're eating, you get this little pod or this stick and, you know, you have mm -hmm. to teach your very small children that you don't eat that. Um, but they yeah. Learn, yeah, but they learn the hard way. They learn the hard way when they bite into it and say, oh, what's that, mom? Um, <laughs> so I don't ever take it out. I leave it in there for them to bite into occasionally just for fun. I love when you get like a cardamom pod in your mouth when you're eating biryani or something. I love that, you know, and then just sort of like you get this little burst. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's to me, it's a really awesome to sort of like teach people. You can leave the bay leaf in. You can leave the cardamom pod in. I had a flashback to a, a memory from about 20 years ago when I was visiting my cousin and her daughter. She was around six or seven years old and I was like, I was in college and we were eating food and I don't know what possessed me to do this, but she pointed out a mirchi that like, like a little red, hot red pepper that had been in the, uh, in the dish. And she said, what is this? And I was like, oh, you can eat that. It's good. <laughs> I think I told her it was a carrot. <laughs> oh! <laughs> just to watch, like, 
<laughs> I know. It was so cruel. I was just teasing my little niece. <laughs> did you did you feel bad at all? I, I mean, you're I laughing about it now, really but did you feel bad at the time? No, I don't think so. I thought it was a nice way for us to bond. <laughs> you know, my kids had looked at chilies and thought, oh, mom, can we eat that? And they thought, well, you know, dad has it, so can we have it? And uh, maybe I'm just an awful mother. I'm not sure. But I was like, yeah, go on. <laughs> but since then, you know, they, they're less afraid of it. So they, they know the pain it can cause when they eat a whole one. But they know that, you know, with little amounts of it can really enhance their kind of eating experience. And now if I give them porridge, they're like, can we have a chili with it? It's like just enough with the, they just want chilies with everything do they want your korma to be spicier then no they don't because there are some you do add some fresh green chilies right at the very end so it does have very little tiny tiny amount of heat so they would eat those with their rice whole no problem but that's one of the first curries that we feed our children at six months when we're weaning them so when we're weaning them onto solid foods that's the curry that every one of my children tried first and it's their first mm. experience of spice. Oh. And there are so it's like everything in there is really soft yeah. and easy to chew. Yeah, I love that. When I asked my mom what's the first thing I should feed them, she said every child of mine has had a korma first, so you've got to make that. So I made that and at the time they didn't take to it and my mom said, "Oh, well, you're doing it wrong." That's why. <laughs> she then drove up 165 miles with uh, a few Tupperwares of korma and then fed my child and said, "That's how you do it." I said, "Okay, mother, that's fine." I mean, <laughs> She came with a, a lot of curry, so I didn't complain. I was like, that's fine. <laughs> Does she approve of your methods now? Does she feel like you've gotten it right? Oh, she doesn't like everything. I've got to say, you know, I, I did not grow up in a house where I got told, you know, well done and you did good and none of that. It was just... Oh, neither did we. Don't worry. <laughs> I could always do better. It's like, if you get an A, could you not have got an A star? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, my mum, you know, now I'm a cook. She's just like, mm, I mean, of all things... <laughs> Same, same, same. She goes, you, you, so you, you cook at home and then you, you cook some more on camera. It's like, yeah, mom, but I get paid for it. You know, it's an actual job. Um, but so no, she doesn't always approve of everything because often I will cook recipes that I grew up with, but I like to change them around a little bit. And I try not to come away too far from the heart of the dish. And I, there was one particular recipe that I showed my nan in my book and I showed her the image and she said, no, it's wrong. So, okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I just accept that there will always be criticism. So I don't show them anymore. Has your mom ever been on your show? Never on my cookery shows. Oh, yeah. You got to have your mom on your show. I, when I had my mom on my show, it was both incredibly traumatizing and so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if I ever allowed her on set, we, we would may not have a relationship at the end of it. Oh, trust me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Do your kids ever help you make the chicken korma? They do know how to make it. They do watch me. But I think they tend not to get involved with the korma. They get involved with everything else. The kids are really confident in the kitchen. But when it comes to the korma, I think there's something... So I never announce I'm making a korma. It's usually this smell that drags them out of their bedroom. And very, very few things make them come out of their bedroom. <laughs> but that's the one thing oh, she's cooking a korma. And honestly, the excitement on their face. And because it's a, a dish that's so special to them, they often step back and just say, mom, they don't even offer to help. They just kind of know that that's mom's thing. She's cooking it. And, and you know, it's quite nice actually to have that one thing that when I cook it, they it's know yours. I'm doing it. And also in years to come, I hope that They'll try and recreate it and say, no, only mum knows how to. Mum mom makes the best korma. You know, and, and I hope their wives and their husbands try and make it. And they say, no, only my mum can make it. <laughs> you want to pass your disapproval on to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I am turning into my own mother. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Amazing. Nadia, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You can follow Nadia on Instagram at Nadia J. Hussein. And make sure to check out Nadia's show, Nadia's Time to Eat, on Netflix. After that conversation with Nadia, Samin, you and I talked about how we would love to have more family recipes in our show. Yeah, I think talking to Nadia really highlighted for me something that I miss, which is talking to people about their own food and their own cooking and their own traditions mm -hmm. and participating in that. Yeah, and so in that spirit, 
you put out the word saying that if people had home cooking questions specifically around family recipes that they were having trouble getting right, that they should write to us. And that was actually the situation with the mango pie recipe you did for the New York Times. I couldn't get my mom's mango pie recipe, again with the mangoes, I couldn't get my the mango pie recipe, and you helped me figure it out. It was the original seed for this podcast, in a way. That's right. I told Samin we should have a podcast where she solved cooking mysteries called Samin Nasrat, Chef Detective. And I was going to make like Hercule Poirot-style mystery music. Hi, I'm Samin Nasrat, and this is Chef Detective. So that podcast never came about, but this one did. And we're going to try and incorporate that idea of Samin helping you solve the mystery of whatever family recipe isn't going right for you. Yeah. So keep sending your family recipe questions. Yes. Please. We've already gotten some sent in and I'm going to play you one right now. My name is Jacinta and my question is about a type of crepe from the region of northern Spain called Asturias, where my mom's family is from. And these are dessert crepes. They're usually served with sugar on top. They're called frisuelos. And whenever my grandma in Spain makes them, they always come out really chewy and a little bit like brown and golden on top. But whenever I try to make them here in New York, they come out kind of like a more typical, I want to say French crepe, where it's just like more flat and it doesn't really have that chewiness. And I'm not really sure because I'm following the recipe exactly as my grandma has written it for me. So I'm not sure if maybe I should let the dough rest or if I'm using the wrong kind of flour. Like maybe I need a more high gluten flour. Yeah, I'm not sure because the ingredients are really simple. It's just an egg, milk, and flour. So I'm really confused. But I would appreciate your help. Thank you. Love your podcast. So part of why I like this question is because I've never had a frisuelo. I've never actually heard of one before. Have you? I have not. I'm I'm looking them up right now. They okay. look beautiful. They just look like a golden crepe. Mm-hmm. They look delicious. And do you think that you could help Jacinta figure out what the problem is? I do have a couple thoughts. If this were an episode of Chef Detective, I would make many phone calls. I would hit the road. I would go to Spain. I would get all the cookbooks out. But instead, I just texted my friend who lives in Spain. (laughs) (laughs) He gave me some good thoughts. He said, the eggs here are richer, which is true. They're fattier usually. And I remember too, like when I lived in Italy, the yolks tend to be more golden Hmm. and denser and fattier, you know, than American eggs. What accounts for that? Less factory farming, (laughs) Mm. you know? So what I might do is make a mixture of like one egg and one egg yolk and really whip that together and then use probably maybe, I don't know, two thirds or three quarters of that as one egg sort Mm. of of what your grandmother was using. Mm -hmm. And that'll get rid of some of the water content and replace that with some more fat and also help you get that that golden color that you're after. Mm. And then make sure you're using full fat milk and you may need to use a higher gluten flour. I don't think your grandma's using that fancy of flour. And there is a difference absolutely in the flour here and there, Hmm. but I'm not sure that that's that huge of a difference in a recipe like this. This isn't that technical of a recipe. And actually what resting would do is the opposite. You know, resting would make it less chewy. Oh, yeah, less chewy. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think you really want to rest it. I think probably what your grandma's doing is whipping the crap out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what I would suggest is um, a little bit more fat, a little bit more mixing mm-hmm. and see where that takes you. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that works. And I just looking at the pictures of the frisuelos, I would say that the goldenness absolutely comes from the eggs and the egg yolks. Hmm. So I do think that just adding a little more egg yolk will help. Thanks so much for the question, Jacinta. And let us know how it goes. Send us an email and and tell us about the results. Oh, yeah. Send us a picture. I want to see. Otherwise, we will continue the case. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So remember, send us your family recipe questions along with your regular home cooking questions. Also, send your Honey for Samin boyfriend applications to a little home cooking <laughs> at gmail.com. Let my beautiful friend have some more love in her life. There are a lot of people who love Samin, but it is romantic love that we are specifically talking about here. This is so mortifying. <laughs> and that's it for this episode. 
Thanks for listening. We make this podcast with the help of Margaret Miller, Zach McNeese, Gary Lee, and Casey Deal. And the brilliant Mamie Rheingold does the illustrations for our episodes. Home Cooking is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collective of fiercely independent podcasts. And you can learn about all of the Radiotopia shows at radiotopia.fm. Let us know if you have any cooking-related questions. Record a voice memo on your phone. And just remember, when you're recording, hold the phone up to the side of your head like you're making a regular call. The recording will sound better that way. And send it to us at a littlehomecooking at gmail.com. Our website is homecooking.show, and you can find transcripts, recipes, and resources on there. You can follow me at Chowsamine on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Rishi Hirway. Stay healthy, eat well, and take care of each other. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode. Until then, I'm Samin. And I'm Rishi. And we'll be home cooking. Radiotopia.